Back in my college days at good old Texas A&M University, I was a regular worship breakaway ministries and a participant in several Bible studies. The contemporary Christian culture of A&M in the late 90s was actually pretty helpful for me in my faith development, and I mostly avoided becoming too narrow-minded about any faith question because I had such an excellent um, being brought up in the Episcopal Church. Now, back in those days, we used to half-joke quite regularly that all of us guys were looking for our P31 wives. For those of you who don't know, P31 is a reference to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, which describes a capable wife who can find she is of more value than jewels. Well, that in itself sounds pretty good, but if you go on from there in Proverbs 31, there is a description, a list of qualifications of this woman, and it seems like she is perfect in every way, possessing every quality that one could be looking for in a partner and none of the imperfections. And of course, all of the young ladies at A&M in those days were looking for their ideal husband or their Boaz, a man of wealth, of status, and of character. Now, not once during all that time did I ever have a woman ask if she could glean in my fields, probably because I've never owned any fields, but Ruth and Boaz as prospective young partners for young Christians isn't really the worst thing that one could hope for as long as the judgmental comparisons to living people are avoided. This capable woman, Ruth, and this man of character, Boaz, find themselves through God's providence and end up being the great grandparents of King David. Now, while the book of Ruth is a love story of sorts, it's more than just the story of two people getting married. It's a much broader story of God's love for God's people. It's a story of God's love for all people. It's a story of hope. Now, we've walked through the first two chapters of Ruth these past two Sundays, and we've learned about Naomi's tragic losses, of Ruth's faithfulness, of Boaz's generosity to Ruth and, by extension, to her mother-in-law, Naomi, throughout this barley harvest. Today in chapter 3, we continue that narrative in Naomi's instructions to Ruth and Ruth carrying out those instructions and then reporting to Naomi what has transpired. One of my favorite characteristics about the book of Ruth is that it's a fun and easy way to learn some important biblical Hebrew there's a handful of Hebrew words I think are crucial for all Christians to know and to understand because they inform how we know and understand God. Four of these words are prominent in Ruth chapter three. Now the first is the tetragrammaton, the four letter name of God, which our Jewish and brothers and sisters do not pronounce. Um, and you can transliterate it into the letters Y-H-W-H. You've probably heard this before. When you read the Bible, however, it's pronounced Adonai. It doesn't look anything like Y-H-W-H. And when it's translated into English, you ever run across a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, all capitalized? That's where that's coming from. So that's the first Hebrew word, Y-H-W-H, Adonai. The second word appears when Boaz in the story praises Ruth, and he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. 
The word Baruch means to bless. The prayers of Jesus at the Last Supper would have begun, Baruch Atah Adonai, blessed are you, Lord. The third Hebrew word that we encounter in Ruth chapter three is the word goel, and it means redeemer or next of kin. When Boaz asks who this woman is that's appeared to him in the middle of the night, she replies, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. In other words, you are my goel. Boaz says, Actually, there's another who's most, more closely related, and if he will serve as your goel, then that's fine, but if not, I swear by the Lord that I will do it. This word goel, this concept of redeemer, as the closest in your family who has the right and the responsibility to come and rescue you from indebtedness. This concept develops into our, one of the primary ways that we understand Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is our redeemer, our goel. He's our brother, our nearest of kin, closest family member, who has the right and the responsibility to rescue us from being enslaved to sin. So now we have three, right? We've got the biblical Hebrew words for the Lord, for blessed, and for redeemer. All are hope-filled words and they lead us to our fourth Hebrew word, which is what the book of Ruth is really all about. And the word is hesed. It means loving kindness. It means wishing that our neighbors, we wish them well, and we're willing to give them friendly assistance in the defense and the attainment of their good. In this chapter of Ruth, Ruth's loyalty to Boaz is described as hesed. You see, God shows loving kindness, hesed, to the Hebrew people in providing food. He does so, um, you will remember, in the escape from Egypt and of course throughout Ruth and this relief from the famine that it experienced. Boaz shows this loving kindness, this hesed, to Ruth and by extension to Naomi and allowing Ruth to glean in his fields, keeping her safe, giving her water, and even providing extra food for them. Ruth shows Boaz hesed, loyalty, and loving kindness. First, by staying in his fields, and then in our chapter today, in her marriage proposal. In the course of the biblical narrative arc, throughout salvation history, God shows loving kindness, God shows hesed to Israel, and God's people are in turn called then to show hesed to those who are not part of the in-group, part of the elite, to those who are oppressed, and to those who are foreign. Now the book of Ruth itself, most biblical scholars believe, was written in response to the sectarian and xenophobic books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's produced during the period of the, after the Babylonian exile. The author of those books believed that the reason that Israel and Jerusalem were defeated was because of foreign wives introducing false gods, and thus God's punishment. Ezra and Nehemiah want Israel's bloodline to be pure to try to upset, to try to prevent upsetting God any further. But the problem with this type of thinking in the Old Testament is that God 
is always calling Israel, and by extension, you and I, his church today, to welcome the foreigner, to be a light to the nations, to bring all people into God's fold. Back in biblical times, as well as today, people have a tendency to blame any problems they might be facing on those who are different rather than looking in the mirror. Xenophobia, the fear of people from other countries, cultures, has never in the course of human history worked out well. Nor should xenophobia be tolerated by any person of faith. Remember the Jewish Holocaust, the murder of black families by the Ku Klux Klan, and the Indian caste system, which actively has hurt those of the lower castes. Remember when, during World War II, Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians were segregated from the population and lost basic rights and liberties? And remember the, narrative, the Native Americans' treatment at the hands of the colonialists. The book of Ruth was written long ago to show the gift of people from different parts of the world, the gift of different cultures that one can bring to one another through God's providence. And not so long ago, this country of ours and this church of ours were places where people from all over the world, from different countries, religions, cultures, and backgrounds were welcomed. God's loving kindness, God's hesed, that is extended to us on the cross of Christ is the same loving kindness that we are to show those who are imprisoned, those who are oppressed, to the widow, to the orphan, and to the refugee. These are principal characteristics of Judaism and Christianity, and I don't think people of faith can argue with this. Several days ago, all 10 Episcopal bishops of Texas released a statement saying, we call on our state and national leaders to reject fear-based policymaking that targets people who are simply seeking safety and the chance to live and work in peace. The situation at the border is, by all accounts, a crisis. Refugees come in desperation. Border personnel are under stress. We do this because Christians are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. We seek to follow the biblical and moral imperatives of our Lord. In addition, the United States has legal obligations through international laws as well as our own immigration law to provide protection for those who qualify as refugees. My brothers and sisters, you and I, we have the power to speak up and to act. We are shown love by a Savior who gave up his own life to redeem us from the prison of sin and to help us cross over the border of death. As followers of this Jesus, like Boaz, we can and should welcome those in need who are not from here and yet through God's providence bring us the gifts and the truth that we need. How will you live out that same hesed that Boaz shares with Ruth. Even though they were from different lands, his loving kindness made the way possible for the Davidic kingdom and even for Jesus' own family. As you leave this place today,
How will you show loving kindness to one another? Not only to your spouse, significant or partner, not only to your immediate family, close friends, but to each person that you meet, here, the members of St. Michael, and to the many people outside of these walls, across this and many countries, who are trapped at one border or another. How will you show them loving kindness? How will you share with other people the love that God has poured out upon you? Amen.